from a bar mitzvah at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to a temple procession in Taipei. The people of our world are passionate about their beliefs. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. Hello and welcome to Radio Taiwan International. I am Natalie So. Up this hour, I talk with leading China experts Harry Harding and Shirley Lin, professors who are visiting here in uh, National Zhengzhou University, about their thoughts on President Xi Jinping's recent threats to Taiwan and the latest from the live performance scene on Live from Taipei. But first, join us for Here in Taiwan. Welcome to Here in Taiwan. It's Friday, January 18th. And in the studio, we have John Ventrius. Hi there. Paula Chow. Hello. And I am Natalie So. We'll be talking to you about the latest from our favorite pandas, Yuan Yuan and Tuan Tuan. Also, some rare animals that have been found. And what is or is not going on on Jade Mountain. Those stories and more next. Okay, we always love to hear about our pandas from the Taipei Zoo. We got a big family over there. Well, not a big family. Three. What's going on with Tuan Tuan and Yuan Yuan, Paula? Okay, uh, one of the pandas at Taipei Zoo, Yuan Yuan, has had a tooth and gum problem from birth. But after some training, uh, Yuan Yuan is now able to brush her teeth with the help of zoo staff. She can brush her teeth, or she can be brushed. She's willing right. to be brushed. Able to brush her teeth with <laughs> the help of... Bru- um, I was going to say, that would be a feat of coordination. <laughs> right. If you want to you know, to prevent cavity, you have to know how to brush your teeth in the correct way. And then anyway, oh, Yuan Yuan has a, a tooth and gum problem from birth. And actually, last year, the, the animal received a dental care. So the, recently, they decided to, to teach her, and then they help her brush her teeth. And they actually do that two times a day, because sometimes when um, the animal um, bamboo leaves, the bamboo leaves got stuck between, oh, between her teeth. their teeth. Yes, so that so that is a problem. Do they and, floss too? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think so. But it's somehow you know these animals they all have you know dental problems because last year Tuan Tuan or her mate also experienced um, dental problems and Tuan Tuan actually um, had a broken uh, tooth and then um, Tuan Tuan became the first panda in the world to be fitted with a tooth cap. Wow, I hadn't heard this one. Right. Oh, wow. And actually, a team of 20 medical workers performed a procedure that the Taipei Zoo said to mark a milestone in wildlife medical care. Wow. So think about it. Animals don't brush their teeth. I think so, so how yeah. do they take care of their teeth? Mm. Right. They, they don't. They can't. Or they, they can't, <laughs> right. But I guess because, you know, they... I mean, it's it's really important for them to chew on those well, hard. A lot of them aren't eating sugar-heavy diets like humans are, so I That's doubt they have quite true. the level of cavities and other problems that we do. That's true. Right. But anyway, Taipei Zoo has to, um, you know, made a specially designed um, toothbrush with oh. a very long. I, I want to see the brushing with teeth. a very long handle to make interactions with the animal easier. Also, uh, to make sure that it's safe for zookeepers to help her. No, right, brush she get mad or something. Yes. <laughs> like, what are you doing in my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if they have this on video. 
Can we watch it?、Uh, we don't have a video, but according to、uh, one zookeeper, Yuan Yuan,、uh, in the beginning,、um, she is not used to you know brushing her teeth, but now she. It seems to zookeepers that she enjoyed the process very much. Good for her. But it feels better when she's done, right? Yes. Fresh mouth. Well, speaking of rare animals, we have、um, some news about some rare animals. Tell us about that. A whole、John. slew of rare animals. Uh, animals that are rarely seen by humans and that most people don't think are there. They've been spotted in an area of badlands in the southern city of Tainan, sort of out in the outskirts of that city, I guess,、uh, a bit inland. And this is all thanks to a project、uh, conducted by a community college down there, the Tainan Community University. In January 2017, their environmental team there started putting up those、uh, cameras in the area that I guess capture motion. And they did this because they're going to put a landfill in there. And I guess they want to draw attention to the fact that this is a home to animals. Maybe think twice about it. Well, there's a whole list of them. They found crab eating mongooses, pangolins, ferret badgers, hares, Formosan sandbar, Formosan sika deer, and a wide variety of birds as well. Oh, so that's a that's lot of. That's wonderful. And the, well, they're going to put a landfill in there, though. Well,、so、that's not wonderful for there's them. There's some urgency in this, I guess. Right. And right.、Uh, so they held a press conference Wednesday to show the world about what they'd found. And、uh, a manager of the, envir- of envi- the manager of environmental and natural sciences at the university said that people have been taught, I guess, in, in schools here, that、uh, the Badlands are sort of. Sort of、uh, devoid of any kind of life.、Uh, they, there is a lot of, like, I think they call, sometimes call them moon landscapes in Taiwan. There's,、uh, they have them in other parts of the Southwest too. Like in Kaohsiung, I know there's some. And、uh, they're pretty, like, jagged, harsh looking terrains, but there's stuff living there. So well, don't mention throw, a lot of life over Don't there, throw、right? a landfill on top of it. And then the environmental convener for the university says that lots of countries around the world have marked out areas just like this one of badlands as re- nature reserves or even national parks. And,、uh, you know, right there in Tainan, they have what, what、uh, this convener calls world class badlands. And the place should have been regarded as a natural treasure and preserved either as a geological park or nature reserve. Instead, they're going to put a landfill on top of it. But hopefully, thanks to all this work, this multi year project,、uh, people will reconsider. Yeah, hopefully. Maybe we'll become a nature. I would like to see those animals. I know. I would go visit. Yeah, lots of people don't know that they're there, apparently, but、uh, there's a huge range of them. So at least they know now, and hopefully,、um, Taiwan will make moves to protect them. False doctor, a quack, made the news recently for being caught after 10 years of practicing. This is、right. crazy. Well, this man,、um, he's、um, he a 57 year old man who lives in, the, in Zhanghua County, and he actually,、uh, without a license, he actually he has been practicing medicine for at least 10 years. And his victims,、uh, is, there are about At least 10,000 victims island wide. Wow. Right. And guess what? How much money does he make every month? He makes about 5,000 to 6,600 US dollars、That's、every month. It's a lot. It's a lot. Right. And his victims or his patients are mostly senior citizens, and a lot of them are, are, have you know, chronic diseases. 
So it's a it's a big problem because uh, this guy uh, he used to work as an assistant in the hospital in Taipei, and then in the, after he left the hospital, um, he moved to southern Taiwan, and he told the residents there that he's a doctor. And you know what he usually do is he rode a motorbike to those victims' home. And it's like he, house calls. Wow. So he, yeah. he just makes house calls. He doesn't have yeah. his own clinic. Well, well, that's a relief. No clinics, no hospitals, because he doesn't have a license. And he gives them medicine. Right. He gives them medicine. He, uh, he gives them the diagnosis, uh, medicines, give prescriptions. And he even, he even you know, gave his those victims a shot. Oh, I would hate to get an injection right. from a oh non-licensed oh, doctor. Unfortunately, well, he was, you know, the police caught him and he was detained. So how, I wonder how he was caught. Yeah, after One of his all patients time. finally discovered something's wrong. I don't or? know how he got caught, but anyway, when they when the police went to his went to his home, they found that um, his well, obviously that's not a clinic. The, the place where he lives is actually in a remote area in a rice field or something like that. So you know, people won't go there that often. So this, mm. it's, it, this is really bad. Wow. Well, at least he's caught, and he probably yes. will be put in jail. I mean, I can't I imagine think so. stopping. Dangerous. Yeah. Yes, so gotta be careful of uh, <laughs> unlicensed doctors. The sound of the Amis tribe on Radio Taiwan International. winter, but um, we are waiting for something up there on Jade Mountain. Tell us about this. Yes, I'm just really bringing it down today. <laughs> First a landfill and now this. Yes, Jade Mountain is Taiwan's highest peak, and it could, well actually it already has, broken the record for the latest snowfall in 66 years. Oh, this year is the latest? Yes, I think. Wow. I don't, it doesn't say on record, but 66 years. And uh, so that, yeah, the, that benchmark was passed Wednesday, January 16th. Uh, they were calling for snow. The Weather Bureau here said that snow was would probably fall either on Wednesday evening or Thursday morning, but just a little bit of like frosty stuff came down on the ground. No real snowfall. And uh, so, yeah, the temperatures are right, but there wasn't enough moisture in the air. So there was not even not even any snowflakes. Uh, I mean, the, the mountain does vary. I mean, in, in 1986, the first snowfall fell on October 1st. But the normal range really is from November 8th to December 23rd. And I remember in past mm, years, right we've reported Christmas. that. Right. And right. We've, we've reported, I think, on this program, too. It's the first snow of the year because it's one of the only places in Taiwan that really snows you know, regularly. Gets those mountains up there, right? Uh, so that's something special. And uh, this year, nothing yet. We have had, like, one of the warmest winters. Um, so... Oh, That's yes. One reason, I would I mean, say. And it hasn't always been early. I mean, the, the previous record was January 17th, and that was set in 1953. But uh, it looks like we're in some uncharted territory now. I hope it does snow eventually. So have any of you ever been to Jane Mountain? Uh, I've seen it. Nope. You've seen it? <laughs> I've seen it from afar. But I mean, you need permission to climb it, don't you? Really? I'm not sure it's just oh. something you can just walk up. A lot of mountains need 
special mm-hmm. permits from either a national park or whatever. Well, it is a very high mountain to climb. I mean, it's an ambitious climb. It's not. I mean, it's beautiful up there, but. Um, it's 3,952 meters or nearly 13,000 feet above sea level. So it's actually the fourth highest mountain on any island and the highest in East Asia. So, and it's called Jade Mountain because usually there is snow and not now, on though. the peak and it, it glistens like jade. It's very beautiful. Wow. So that's why people are a little bit concerned or they're really, you know, looking forward to that jade. Yeah, there really look. hasn't been a winter without snow in the past 66 years is what we're saying. So it would be really a bad first if this year didn't have... I mean, temperatures do usually get colder as we get closer to like the Lunar New Year, right? That's but, true. So there's still some there's hope, still time, but it's still so. very late. Yep. So we'll... Very concerning. Um, hmm. Yeah. It's a very favorite mountain for, you know, um, mountain climbers, uh, local hikers, international hikers. So um, it's a beautiful place. You can see a sea of clouds and um, so much to see there. Just no snow at the moment. But no snow right now. So mm. we'll keep you updated. If there's snow on Jay Mountain, hear we it first will <laughs> let you know. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in to Here in Taiwan. And do stay tuned for Taiwan Today. I talked to visiting professors Harry Harding and Shirley Lin. They are visiting from the University of Virginia. They're both authors on books about China and Taiwan, very well known and respected in their field. We talk about um, President Xi Jinping's recent remarks on Taiwan and Taiwan's reaction. And then we have live from Taipei for you and newsmakers. And after that, we'll be back with one more thing. But for here in Taiwan, I'm Natalie So. I'm John Ventriest. And I'm Paula Chow. RTI on the web at english.rti.org.tw. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. I'm delighted to have with me a power couple in the world of academia, Professor Harry Harding and Shirley Lin. Shirley Lin is the author of Taiwan's China Dilemma, and Harry Harding is the author of many books about China, and they are visiting professors here at National Zhenzi University. We're going to get their thoughts on cross-strait relations. Well, in the beginning of this year, President Xi Jinping had a very hardline speech about uh, Taiwan wanting to reunify Taiwan with China. So, Shirley, what do you think of that speech and, and what Xi Jinping was trying to express? 
I think many, many people feel that this was perhaps one of the strongest speeches by Chinese leaders toward Taiwanese uh, people and the Taiwan government. Uh, however, if you look at the content of the speech, it was pretty much emphasizing the existing policy. However, Xi Jinping did do something uh, that uh, is more uh, emphatic. For example, saying that China will not renounce the use of force, but more importantly, to talk about uh, one country, two system and unification in the same speech as the 1992 consensus uh, has uh, resulted actually in quite a response on the Taiwan side by both the government and the people, especially uh, the younger generation. So I think that um, Xi Jinping has created some unintended consequences, if you will. That's, that's right. He connected the 1992 consensus with um, one country, two systems, which was not directly connected before. So what do you think about what he well, said? I think that's like? right. I think that the 92 consensus, if we think back to 91 when it was formulated, that was a time when both governments were committed to eventual unification. And I think that's what made the consensus possible. And obviously, times have changed on, uh, on Taiwan. Uh, but I think that Xi Jinping was emphasizing, and we've heard this in, in, in meetings in China, that maybe we don't call it the 92 consensus, but whatever the Taiwan government comes up with as an alternative formula has to involve the idea, not just one th uh, China in theory, but unification as the goal. Mm. Uh, and that obviously is going to be difficult to state that bluntly here on Taiwan, given the change in Taiwanese identity. Right, and President Tsai Ing-wen came back to say, you know, the Taiwan consensus is that, you know, we cannot mm -hmm. accept one country, two systems. I think that's a very interesting point in that not only President Tsai, who surprisingly then saw her ratings go up dramatically, but also the KMT came out to draw a line uh, in the sand to say that they also did not support the one country, two system. So I think what has happened in the last 30 years uh, is uh, very uh, notable in that the one country, two system does not have uh, an audience anymore in Taiwan. Uh, this is uh, the last 20 years uh, since Hong Kong's handover. Uh, it is obvious that uh, the results are not satisfactory to the Hong Kong people uh, and definitely not uh, a model for a unification for the Taiwanese, uh, if there was any chance of increase of support for unification. And at the moment, after Xi Jinping came to power, more and more Taiwanese and more and more Hong Kong young people are saying that they are of a separate identity. And uh, support for unification has not changed uh, substantially. So I think that the hardline position Xi Jinping toes may be important for an internal audience, but in terms of the effect on cross-strait relations, I think the gap is actually growing. And Harry, do you think that President Xi Jinping has a timetable for reunification? Well, that, of course, is the $64 question, as we, as we call it. Uh, several dates have been put forward. Uh, 2049 is the one that makes the most sense for me. to me. If there is a timetable, that would be the uh, anniversary of the establishment of the People's Republic in 1949. Maybe another way of looking at it, uh, which raises the question of how long he'll be in office, is that he would like it to happen while he is in office as mm -hmm. his greatest, uh, greatest achievement. What we do know is that the leadership in Beijing for some time has 
realize that time is not necessarily entirely on their side. Yes, they're becoming stronger, but uh, the sense of a separate identity and now the resistance to unification is also becoming becoming stronger. So I think that there will be a variety of pressures to, uh, as I think she himself has said it, to make sure this issue doesn't go on generation after generation, but to resolve it fairly soon. And you've been here as visiting scholars in mm -hmm. Taiwan. I, mm -hmm. I know you also spent time in Hong Kong. Yes. How would you compare the attitudes of the people of Taiwan and of Hong Kong towards China? And when we start with Shirley, because she writes on this more than I do. <laughs> in the last 21 years, since Hong Kong's handover in 1997, at the uh, beginning, actually, more and more people felt... Uh, increasingly patriotic and uh, more people uh, started to change their sense of identity from being both a Chinese and a Hong Konger to becoming more Chinese. Now part of the reason may also be that there are more and more immigrants coming from China to Hong Kong who of course uh, identify more with being Chinese. But since 2008, the peak of this uh, patriotic trend, if you will, it has been declining steadily and gradually. And it's really precipitated, especially after the 2014 uh, umbrella movement in Hong Kong, where young people wanted a different way of a civic way, a civic nomination for their uh, leaders. And uh, the government stonewalled the students and did not give in. And in addition to that, um, uh, many of the students who turned into political leaders uh, have been uh, arrested, uh, and this is uh, very uh, disconcerting. On the Taiwan side, I think similar trends uh, is that more and more young people believe that they are Taiwanese and not both Chinese and Taiwanese, and definitely not Chinese. I think these are data that Beijing totally understands and sees. But to reverse this is very difficult. Do you have anything to yeah, add, Yeah, I was just going to add that I think that Beijing seems to think that what matters most to people is money, is material conditions. Mm. And that's what they argue to both Taiwan and to Hong Kong, that basically your economies are in the high income trap and you need the uh, relationship with China to get out of it. And uh, don't think about politics, don't think about values, just think about material benefit. And that is not the way everyone thinks uh, in high-income societies in, uh, in particular. Xi Jinping, I think the most interesting line in his speech was when he said that the differences in political system should not be a pretext uh, for avoiding unification. Well, certainly, I don't, think, I, don't think, I don't think people in Taiwan or Hong Kong see it as a pretext. They see it as what they really believe. And that's the problem. To really turn things around, I think that China needs to change uh, in a more open direction. And Xi, uh, Xi Jinping seems to be moving backward on that rather than forward. I think that's a very uh, important point uh, that I'd like to um, add to, which is uh, democracy and a way of life are what, in my book, I say, um, I call consumatory values, values that um, consume you, that uh, you would not uh, compromise on. And therefore, it's not a pretext. And more importantly, uh, in terms of um, uh, this uh, ultimate contradiction, which is how to live in a democratic society 
under um, uh, Beijing's rule. I think this is something that Beijing uh, needs to be much more thoughtful about in talking to young people. And you had asked us what we thought of our 100 days. I came up with uh, my conclusion, which is young people in Taiwan. This is one point that is not similar to Hong Kong young people. Young people in Taiwan are extremely uh, interested in having opportunities in China to live and work, uh, but not to be there permanently because uh, they value their freedom. They value their op- the opportunity to look at uh, Instagram, Snapchat, and use Spotify and Facebook. So it's okay for the uh, short term for opportunities, but ultimately their values are very much all about freedom. Therefore, uh, I think they are what I call pragmatic idealists. They're very pragmatic, but they're extremely idealistic. They care about the environment. Uh, they care about um, uh, food safety. Uh, many of the students I taught are vegetarian or vegan. Uh, and uh, uh, they care about our energy policy here in Taiwan. And what do you think about the Taiwanese attitude towards China, the people that you've come in contact with? Well, I think it varies. Um, I think that some identify more with China than others, although the ratio is shifting for uh, toward identification with, uh, with Taiwan. Uh, but it surely says uh, there is uh, an understanding that there's a lot of opportunity there, but that doesn't mean that they want to live under, con- under the control of Beijing, and they see that that's what is happening to Hong Kong. It's not just the opportunity for deeper economic integration, uh, but along with that is coming greater political control. So it seems like the two sides actually have very different outlooks. Yes, President Xi believes that it doesn't matter, you know, we'll be fine if we reunite, whereas the Taiwanese don't want to be under China. So do you think that this will lead to eventual conflict, a military conflict? Well, it could. We certainly hope not. But I think that if uh, China gets more impatient, feels that it has to resolve the issue by a certain date, or that the trends are moving irrevocably away from them, and if they can't come up with a more effective effective ways of changing, of winning hearts and minds, as we used to call it, uh, here on Taiwan, uh, that, is a, that is a possibility. I think that um, uh, one difference, uh, Natalie, is that in China, the narrative of Taiwan being part of the rejuvenation of the Chinese uh, dream is uh, top-down and therefore has the opportunity to actually be transformed if the leaders were to be more innovative and creative in their solutions to uh, the cross-strait impasse. Whereas in Taiwan, the more difficult part is Taiwanese feeling this way is a bottom-up as well as a top-down. There's two sides to this, and it's much harder to change people's way of thinking when it's bottom up because it's rooted in individuals and communities who have developed uh, some sense of values over time. So I think this uh, this gap is um, going to be difficult to bridge unless the, the uh, Communist Party understands how to reach out to civil society. And they have been reaching out a little bit more under Xi Jinping the last two years, but again, in a top-down way. And I think the final thing is to say that actually my view of the conflict is that China does not want to use force, but its uh, inability to renounce force uh, is becoming a real obstacle to any kind of negotiation. But the reason that Taiwan is not likely to trigger an immediate uh, war is because China now is much more ambitious than 40 years ago. Taiwan is a core interest, but not the only core interest. East China Sea, South China Sea, China wants to be many, many more things, and reunification is only one of the goals.
And do you think that the U.S. would um, come to Taiwan's aid? I think under the present situation, it would. How we would come to Taiwan's aid is uh, is unclear to me. Um, I think it also always we have to remember that it depends on how a conflict started. If uh, Taiwan did something like unilaterally declaring independence, uh, I'm not sure the United States would be so eager to defend it uh, against the consequences of that action, which have been signaled very clearly by Beijing for a very long time. If it is simply uh, a situation where Beijing loses its patience and decides to use force, I think the United States uh, would do something. But precisely what would depend upon the uh, upon the circumstances? Okay. Well, there's. Uh Definitely a lot for us to keep watching, right? Yes, <laughs> As the so. situation unfolds. Thank you so much for joining us You're today. Um, I've been speaking with Professors Harry Harding and Shirley Lin. They are visiting professors at National Zhengzhou University. They also teach at the University of Virginia. Shirley Lin is the author of Taiwan's China Dilemma, and uh, Harry Harding has authored many books about China. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm. What do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. Listen. Are you listening? <laughs> This is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Where's my son? Welcome to Live from Taipei. I'm Charlie Starrer. At our Taipei Story Slam event on October the 25th, held as always at the Sappho Live Jazz Bar, the theme of the evening was "Where the Hell Am I?" The winner for the month was Curtis Starkey from the United States, with this story of an evening quite literally spent in hell. Um, was an interesting year in a Christian household because uh, most people were worried about like Y2K. Um, I don't know what was supposed to happen on Y2K. I don't really remember. But our family was preparing for um, the rapture, and uh, it sounds funny now, but my family kind of took it seriously. And it's a lot easier than preparing for Y2K. People were buying canned goods and preparing for like everything going into failure. But with the rapture, you just if you're a believer, you you don't have to deal with the earth anymore, and then everyone else is left behind. So. 
Um, this was happening at a time when I was uh, I was kind of losing my faith, and so I thought um, this is a really bad time to be losing my faith because at the chance that this does happen, I'm going to be left behind or go to hell, and I don't want that to happen. Uh, so I need to fix that. And I had about six months when I started panicking uh, until 2000 happened, because of course the rapture was going to happen on that day. But as 2000 rolled around, as the end of the year rolled around in 1999, I still didn't feel like I was actually a good Christian. Like I knew what it was like to be a good believer, a good faithful person, and I didn't feel it anymore. I thought I was just a fraud and an imposter, and I wasn't going to make it in time. Uh, and I, you know, this is going to suck. So December 31st rolled around, and at my church every year we had a thing where we prayed in the new year. We stood in a circle and we talked about the things that we were thankful for that year and then thankful for the next year. And so um, as there were like 10 seconds left in the year, uh, they started the countdown, and I thought, I looked around and I thought, all these people are going to be gone uh, in 10 seconds, and I'm going to be stuck here at my church, you know, huge church, and uh, I mean, it's going to be very embarrassing because I'm at church and I'm left behind. Um, and like one second left, and then I, I looked around, I really didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, I was 11 years old, so maybe, I don't know, but everybody was still there. Nothing happened. Uh, and I was like, okay. But, of course, you know, there's different time zones of midnight. And so I legitimately, like the next midnight, I was, I, I had another countdown in my mind as everyone else was relaxed, you know. And then and the next 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and, and it happened for about eight more hours, and then the world was officially 2000. But um, then I felt like a terrible person for the next couple of years. Uh, I, I dreamed about going to hell. Like, I dreamed about burning and uh, being tortured and uh, eternal damnation and, and legitimately bad dreams for, for a long time after that. And then I, uh, I thought, like, I'm destined to go to hell. And, uh, and then summer camp rolled, summer church camp rolled around, like, two years later. I was, like, tw uh, 13, maybe. And uh, we had this church camp in our small city, uh, which people went to every year. And uh, this was, like, the last year that we were able to go as 13-year-olds, because after that, there was kind of no more church camp. So it was a big deal. Uh, it was about a week long. They prepared a lot of cool activities, and it was a really fun week. And part of me thought, this is kind of my last chance to uh, maybe steer back into going to heaven again. Maybe, maybe I can fix that train that's uh, headed toward hell right now. Um, but it just kind of wasn't working. And the last day rolled around of church camp. It was an emotional day. A lot of people getting baptized and uh, everything that happens at church camp um, and interesting songs and everything. And then they, uh, they, they started calling people in the audience. They started pointing to people and saying, come here, come here. And uh, they, I was one of the people. And uh, they called me into the into the back into the backyard or something, and there were about 50 of us, and they lined us up, and they said, uh, "You know why you're here." And uh, we, none of us, there was no relation. We didn't know why we were there. And uh, they started talking to us. Their, their tone changed like they were drill sergeants. They said, uh, all of you have made very bad decisions. There's a reason you're here. You should know why you're here. You've made bad decisions today, this week, and previously in your life. And we're going to have to do something about that. And uh, I thought, back to the, the first day, I uh, threw TP on my, on my camp counselor's uh, dorm. Uh, and I thought, maybe that's why I'm here. But all these 50 people didn't help me teepee, so I don't know, I don't know why we're here. But um, they they walked us uh, in a line. They said, follow us into this. Uh, we walked through this corridor and we walked through this building. And they pointed to a room and they said, look in, look into this room. And they pulled up a curtain and we looked inside of the room. And inside of the room were a bunch of people. Uh, there was a disco ball and there was a bunch of loud music playing and people were like laughing and holding cake and uh, playing bags and it seemed like they're having a really good time. And then they they, uh, they closed the curtain and they said, you'll never ever be able to enjoy anything like this for the rest of your life because of your decisions. And we, <laughs> what did we do? <laughs> what did we do?
what? And I saw one of the other guys who helped me teepee in there. Why is he? He's eating cake. What, you know? So uh, they walked us into this very like regimented line, uh, and they walked us to the middle of this cafeteria where now, there was like two doors in the bottom of the cafeteria, uh, like basement doors, metal doors that they opened up, and they said, go down. And we went down the, these stairs one by one. Uh, I don't know why. None, none of us said no, but we just went down the stairs, and it was really dark. It was a dark basement. We went down to the basement, and it was very dark. We could barely see. In one corner of the room, there was like this candle that was a really big flame candle, like a fake candle. It looked like a big flame. Uh, I thought, like, the haunted house or something? What is this? And then uh, we could, it was, it was, there were clearly speakers with fake screaming happening. Uh, and um, it, was, it was freezing in there. And it was pitch black. And they sat us down. Well, we first walked a bunch of circles as if we were, I don't know what we were doing, punished for something. And then they sat us down. And they said, welcome to hell. And uh, <laughs> what? You know, I don't know why we're here. And they said, uh, now, first, the first rule is you cannot talk. You can't ask questions. Uh, and they, they, they had they started carrying these like it was really hard to see but they were carrying these like fake pitchforks and uh, you know my dream was coming true like it was actually in hell and they had these pitchforks and if anybody tried to talk they threw like colored pencils and uh, markers I don't know why they had art supplies but they were throwing things at people that were, were not hurt them but uh, you know still they were throwing things and they were walking around in circles and hurling insults at everyone and saying why we were there. And they, they, they held a flashlight to each person and talked to each person individually. And I would point out something about their face or their personality that stated why they were a very bad person. Like for me, they were just like, they looked at my face and they said, you're clearly a sinner and you clearly belong here. And uh, after they did that for long enough, we were you know, down, down there for a while, pitch black, no talking, we kind of started buying into it. Like maybe this wasn't a simulation hell. Um, like maybe we really did something wrong. Uh, they didn't say it was a game. You know, they, were, they had these straight faces and we did do some, I did some bad things in my life. I don't know, I felt like I said some cuss words before that. I don't know, maybe they caught me, I don't know. So um, they made us feel as if we were very bad people. But I tried to kind of change the mood because I was thinking about this girl who I wanted to ask to campfire. It's a really big deal to ask a girl you like to campfire on the last night, but she was up in heaven. And so I told my friend, you know, Ashley's up in heaven, I can't ask her. And I was trying to make a joke in the, in the light of the, the moment, and the hell, the hell people, the hell crew did not like that. They came over and they said, excuse me, why do you think you have the right to speak? And they called me out. They said, we're going to make an example of you. And I thought, great, you know. And they put me in the middle of the room. I could barely see. And they said, uh, start singing like a girl. <laughs> I said, what, what do you mean? That's, why are you asking me to do that? I'm not going to do that. And they, but everybody was like, at this point, people were scared. They were like, just do it, just do it. And uh, so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do this. So I started singing Mary Had a Little Lamb in my normal voice, because at that time, I, my voice hadn't changed yet. So um, it was a pretty high voice. But And then they said, okay, that's good. After a few bars, they sat me back down. I was really nervous and to, to break the silence to make another joke. I thought I was being so funny. I said, uh, I said uh, to my friend, I, I tripped when I was sitting down, and I said, wow, where in hell am I? And I thought it was, like, that's a really big deal for a Christian church camp kid to say, because you're not supposed to cuss, so it was like fake cussing, but I was actually in hell, so I, I thought it was so funny. But the person, the person did not like it at all. They said, are you serious? And they came back over and blindfolded me, and, and I said, that's, I can't see anyway, so it really doesn't matter. And they said, shut up, stop talking. Um, and so then they finished that. At the end, uh, we were allowed to speak to each other and explain why we thought we we were in hell and that included like people were actually crying and holding each other and people were talking about serious things that they've done in real life like i watched some pornography i did this and that like very serious things and uh 
finally we got out of there. Obviously the goal of that was a simulation hell trying to make us feel very bad, and it, it definitely worked. Um, and it's, it's interesting that I spent years of my life worrying that I was going to go to hell, and then I actually did. I spent the night there, you know. And then it turns out that Ashley ended up going to a campfire with a guy from heaven. You know, I can't compete with the heaven guys. Um, and so I didn't get to ask her to campfire. And, uh, yes, yeah, so I would advise any of you to make better decisions so you don't end up in real hell or simulation hell. So, yeah. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Write us at PO Box 123-199. Taipei, Taiwan, ROC. ROC. Newsmakers, a look at Taiwan's movers and shakers. Premier Su Zhenchang has been in the spotlight over the past week. Su was appointed by President Tsai Ing-wen last Friday to form a new cabinet. Su, who lost his race for a new Taipei mayor last November, now finds himself leading the government for a second time. He served as premier for a year during the Chen Shui-bian administration more than a decade ago. As the new cabinet was sworn in on Monday, Su said the executive branch must be more in touch with the public and build on what has already been done. The only thing that matters is results, he said. Su, a veteran of the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, has long been known for his determination, execution, and efficiency. Upon his appointment last Friday, Su promised to roll up his leaves and get to work. Su referred to Britain's Prime Minister Winston Churchill as saying, success is not final and failure is not fatal. Su said, Although the wartime leader faced foreign enemies and domestic political foes, he led Britain to victory with full support from the king. Su also noted that Churchill became prime minister again after World War II and did a good job with trust and support from the queen. The first official paper Su signed is a 10-year space technology development project, which will cost 25.1 billion Taiwan dollars, or about 836 million U.S. dollars. Su Zhenchang was born into a poor family in Pingdong in southern Taiwan. He started practicing law in 1971, two years after graduating from college. He was a defense lawyer for pro-democracy activists involved in the 1979 Kaohsiung incident, a watershed moment in Taiwan's transition to democracy. Su entered politics in 1981 and was a founding member of the Democratic Progressive Party. He was the DPP's vice presidential candidate in 2008 and the party's chair from 2012 to 2014. Su is notable for his bald head, a feature that makes him instantly recognizable. One of his nicknames is Dianhuoqiu, meaning light bulb in Taiwanese. He likes the nickname and has used a light bulb as a campaign mascot.
Thank you for listening to our programs here today at Radio Taiwan International. I am Natalie So, back here with John Van Triest and Paula Chow. And we're going to leave you with one more thing. Well, I'm going to give you a good reason to uh, move around a bit during the winter time. A cardiologist uh, in central Taiwan this week came out to warn the public against sitting or staying in one position for too long of a time. And especially wintertime, you know, you might just not feel like moving around too much. Because one of his patients, a 28-year-old man, was diagnosed with a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot that gets caught in one of the arteries that go from the heart to the lungs. And he got this, um, and it's it's actually quite highly fatal. It's about 30% of people who get this uh, will die. So um, he got this because he spends a lot of time in front of his computer after work. Oh, He leads a very sedentary lifestyle. He doesn't move around too much. And when he came to the hospital, he had no idea what was happening with him, why he felt terrible. He was pale, his voice and limbs were weak, his blood pressure was low, and then they later discovered that he had this blood clot. The doctor says actually the symptoms are not very obvious, but it is a highly fatal condition. He says that most blood clots that cause a pulmonary embolism come from veins deep in the lower limbs and are hard to discover. And if a person maintains the same position for an extended period, blood clots can form in the lower limbs. So I guess that's our legs, right? Also, other risk factors include recent surgery, birth control pills, smoking, chronic disease, obesity, and long trips. So he suggests that people can prevent blood clots by exercising every day, um, having healthy living habits, eating a balanced diet, and staying hydrated and avoid being in the same position for a long period of time. What do you guys think of this? Well, he's only 28. You know, oh, this wow. uh, cardiovascular diseases are usually, I mean, diseases yeah, for ha- older happen people. to for senior citizens. It must have been really sedentary then. Right. Like, never must have been just like playing video games or something. I don't know. I, You know, a lot of people... Just stay home, and I'm thinking of some people I know in my house. <laughs> and they in front of their computer all weekend long or something. Doing There's so much you can do on your computer, right? Right? You can That's watch true. a movie, you can play a video game, you can hang out with, you can talk with your friends. There's a lot of work, too. And, you you know, can do work. Like... You know, I have a little article here that has nine tips to beat a sedentary lifestyle. So there's just a few things we can change. And maybe if we do one of these things every day, uh, we can prevent these kind of diseases. One is to take a walk. I it, love that. Yeah, mm. it, it feels good to it get outdoors, feel right? And, uh, you know, a daily 30-minute walk makes a really big difference. Right, and in Taiwan, we're kind of, it's warm, we have warm winters, and this is mm. an especially warm year, so yeah. it's comfortable, at least if you've got a jacket on. Right. You know, doctors say it really lowers your risk of cardiac death, and um, you can take the stairs. Mm. So, um, actually, stair climbing is one of the best exercises. It burns more calories a minute than jogging. So, it's mm. even better for you than running. And just, you know, um, you can do it at work or at home. Yeah, we've got quite a staircase here, don't yeah, we? Yeah, we, we, our office is on the third, third floor. Our studio is on the first floor. So, we can take the stairs when we go to work. Stand up. You know, if you're at a desk job, stand up once in a while. Don't sit all the time. Wash the dishes. Not so fun, but we have to do that. Is that, is that, 
is that a what's the word uh, invigorating enough to do <laughs> at least you're not sitting right and you're moving a little bit that's, that's a very strenuous thing to do that's but. what I'm doing every day okay. Okay. You know, washing dishes I think housework really counts right okay. get up during commercial breaks stay away from computers yeah. do some gardening because mm. you have to move around a little bit park farther away and walk bike or take public transit so those are some tips for you we hope that we all stay a little bit more active in the winter time to prevent diseases and to be healthy thank you for joining us today on radio taiwan international i'm natalie so thanks again we'll be here tomorrow with curious john lights camera asia and peace meets west For listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kilohertz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kilohertz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.